Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. To the sun, the sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. Those are the first nine verses of Psalm 136, which are the psalm appointed for today, Saturday, September the 24th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are looking, continue, we're, we're beginning to look at... Um, the prophecy of Hosea today, beginning with chapter 1, verse 1, and running through chapter 2, verse 1. And then in the gospel according to Luke, chapter 4, verses 38 to 44. And in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. So, uh, Hosea is certainly an interesting prophecy. Um, it, it's, it's a very tender prophecy. It's a very personal prophecy because God has the prophet actually act out um, his relationship, his God's relationship with his wayward people, particularly the people of the northern kingdom in this instance. But but ultimately, he, he's prophesying against both more uh, clearly and, and um, nearly against the northern kingdom, of which he's a part. And, and the, the, the idea is, is this is about 725 B.C., which is not too long before the actual fall of that northern kingdom. So th- this is Hosea being God's word to them. Now, these are in the days of, of Isaiah and, and several other prophets at the same time. So you'll know the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. So this whole prophecy is going to be the word of God, every bit of it. That, that's the reason it starts with the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. And so everything that follows after this is going to be the word of the Lord. It's the prophecy. There's not a piece here and a piece there and a narrative here and a narrative there. This is all prophecy given directly to Hosea. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, through Hosea, did you see that? Through Hosea, not just to him, but through him. The Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, it's long been said that, that he was married to a prostitute. Well, that's just not true. That she, this is speaking of a woman of her times and a woman of, of Israel, the Israel that was at the time, which, which had committed great whoredom, by forsaking the Lord, and so he is marrying an unfaithful wife, which would in itself have been um, something you wouldn't think a prophet would be commanded to do, to, to take a woman who was not part of the faithful people of the land, and yet God tells him specifically to do that. So he went, and he took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the reason that I would say that, that without doubt she's not a prostitute would be that she's named and her father is named. If, if he took a random prostitute, we wouldn't know her name. We certainly wouldn't, wouldn't identify her father as well. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of 
Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So this is after the reign of Ahab, um, great massacre by Jehu in uh Jezreel and and now Jehu is it's prophesied is going to be deposed in a similar way in the house the valley of Jezreel now the the, the interesting thing about this is that there's two names for the valley of Jezreel Jezreel is a city it's a place name and then there's the valley of Jezreel which is outside the city there's another city it's also considered to be the valley of and that is a city called Megiddo and so the transliteration of the Valley of Megiddo, which is also the same as the Valley of Jezreel, is Armageddon, where the final battle will take place. And so this prophecy, much of it involves that place, Jezreel. So he's saying ultimately that, that the, the kingdom of the north, is, which is known as Israel, uh, is going to go down. It, it will be gone. She conceived, she, Gomer, conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, to Hosea, call her name, no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. I mean, that, that's, a, that's not annulling the covenant because the covenant is an eternal covenant. What it is saying is I've had enough. I've absolutely had enough of this nation, and so I will have no more mercy on them, and the Assyrians, indeed, will come and take over within about 30 years. So it's not going to last very long. But, but God has said, I, I will have no mercy on this people, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the, hand, by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And in the time of Hezekiah, he did indeed do that very thing. He saved them without all of that. He saved them because Hezekiah prayed. And so the Lord acted on their behalf and saved Judah from being overrun at that time during Hezekiah's reign. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. So we're talking about somewhere between four and six years probably from the start of this prophecy until the time when she conceived and bore another son, the second son, the third child. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. That is the saddest prophecy anybody ever had to give. You are not my people, and I am not your God. I mean, that is, that, that, that's not, a, it's not annulling the covenant for the same reason that I mentioned earlier. The covenant is not done, but this particular people, God's done with them, completely done with them. They are not his people, and he is not their God. He has turned his back on them at that point. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Where have we heard that before? Right? I mean, that's the promise to Abraham back in the day. And so that's the reason that I can also say that he's not annulling the covenant, because in this time that he's talking about, sometime in the distant future, and there's no time uh, indicated for when that might be, <clears throat> the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. So, in other words, God's going to fulfill his promise and his covenant that he made with, the, with Abraham, Abraham as well as Isaac and Jacob because he reiterated that covenant to both those men. So, so that covenant, God says, is still in place, and there will come a day when, when it's fulfilled. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, shall be said to them, children of the living God. Now, that term right there, the living God, is an incredibly rare one. 
in the Old Testament. It, you don't find it in any prophecy outside of this right here. It's a remarkable thing that that it's that that it's so rare in the Old Testament, but but you never see it. it. It is unbelievable that this is the only place in prophetic literature where it appears at all. So it, where you are not my people, later you'll be children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel will be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. So they will, they'll, they'll come together even to the extent that they'll agree on one leader. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So, again, in the same place, and again, that's tied to Armageddon, which comes in Revelation, where the final battle is. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. And so this will ultimately be the fate of God's people, but the, but the prophet has to act out in his own life and in the lives of his children the, the prophetic word that the Lord's giving him in order that they can see it. It's going to be an acted-out word in the same way that, that Ezekiel has to act out some of the, uh, the prophetic word that's given to him. And Jeremiah does, too. <clears throat> in the gospel today, Jesus rose and left the synagogue. He's in Capernaum. Remember, he had preached there, and, left the, and that's where he healed the man yesterday who had been possessed by the demon. And he left the synagogue, and he re- entered Simon's house. That's Peter. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. And I've mentioned this before, and I'm going to mention it again now, because it's something I can't recommend highly enough. This series, The Chosen, you can get it on Amazon Prime for free. There's two seasons of it. Um, Peter's mother-in-law is part of the storyline in there for several episodes, actually. It's it's not a like a perfectly chronological thing. It, it pulls together various episodes and then makes a wonderful narrative out of them. Um, you know, th- there's a difference between writing a script for television or a movie and writing a book or a gospel. And so to make a storyline flow through, you have to change things around some, but it's very faithful to the text and to, to, to what actually happens. It's just not chronological in the sense that the gospel is. There, there's some uh, there's license taken there because we get to see some things about the way they see Jesus' personality and, and other dialogue. So it's not something that's just a, a strict reading of it, but I, but I can't highly recommend it enough. So now when the sun was setting, after he's healed the mother-in-law, now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. Now why did they wait until the sun was setting? seems an odd thing to do, right, to come as as it begins to be dusk. Well, there's a reason for that, because it's the Sabbath, and, and Sabbath ends at sundown. So they come now, they can't make the trip, they can't do these things until the sun goes down, and now they can all come out. And so they bring them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them, and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And so they talk about the Messianic secret, particularly in the Synoptic Gospels. And in the Messianic secret, the, the purpose for that was that the witness to Jesus only needed to be his teaching and the works that he did. And so people were, it were intended to evaluate those things and make a decision about who they thought he was. Now, this is before the Spirit's been poured out on all flesh. So, so he, is, he is providing all the evidence they need to come to the right conclusion about who he is and what his identity is. 
and he doesn't want testimony from demons to be part of that witness. So he has to silence those demons in order that nobody's opinion would be based on um, the, the statement and the witness of a demon. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. So early in the morning, he goes out to a desolate place. He leaves where all these people have come. And people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So now he's come down south it, from Galilee into Judea, and he's going to preach there. And, and the, what he's saying here is, is that, that I, it, this is not meant to be a witness only in a region. It, it's meant to be for all the people of God, all the, all the people of Israel, in order that, they, that everyone might be able to make a decision for themselves and it not just be secondhand, that he would come near enough to all these people that, that ultimately you had an opportunity to see and hear and come to a right judgment on your own, because that, every, that, that had to be to fulfill all righteousness. And that's part of the reason for going up for those pilgrim feasts is because in those times, then people came to Jerusalem. So there was a gathering of Jews from all over that would come to Jerusalem. So every Passover, every uh, Shavuot, uh, the Pentecost, the Sukkot, the uh, Feast of Booths, even for the Feast of Dedication, which we call Hanukkah today— even for those pilgrim festivals, Jesus would go to Jerusalem so everybody who was supposed to be there had an opportunity to see and hear for themselves. In the uh, Acts of the Apostles, we start with, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and encouraging them. He said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he, that, that, that uproar was the thing caused by the silversmiths in Ephesus. When he had gone through those regions and given them much encouragement in Macedonia where he had been, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And then Luke gives us a group of people who were with him. Sopater the Berean, so from Berea, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and, the, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus. So these people came from Thessalonica, and Gaius of Derby, which is where he was stoned, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, that would be people like from Corinth and, and that area. They went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas. The days of unleavened bread are right before Passover. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, the people in Troas, all those who had come there to see him there, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So Paul and I have something in common. We will just talk and talk and talk, irrespective of time. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. Now, there was a guy that was in my church here in, uh, in Asheville, wonderful guy, good friend, all that kind of stuff. He... Um, he had a really bad case of restless leg syndrome, so he didn't sleep very well at night. So I helped him, 
on Sunday mornings. I helped him catch up on his sleep. Not every week, but nearly every week. I, I had to have been, my, maybe my voice was such that it, that it just put him to sleep. But anyway, so that's, I think about that every time I read this passage. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him up in his arms says, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with him a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. (laughs) I'm sure that's true, that they were not a little comforted at the fact that um, he had raised this boy from the dead. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. So Luke and the others get on board the ship, and they go to this place called Assos, and and they get there, and Paul goes by land to get there. I'm sure he wanted to talk to other people along the way. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So I, I said earlier that those the days of unleavened bread were prior to Passover, they, they're prior to uh, Pentecost. It includes Passover and then after that. So Paul is, is attempting to be in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and he decides to sail past Ephesus because he knew that if he went to Ephesus, he would be delayed by, by the people there who would want him to stay with them and spend time there. So, so Luke's given us the travelogue of, of how they get back and how they move from there to Pentecost. And um, hopefully we won't skip the rest of this chapter uh, because it's Paul talking to the Ephesian elders. He calls them to come to him here in, in Mytilene, or to Miletus, I'm sorry, and, and then says goodbye to them and gives them sort of his final words. Hopefully that won't be tomorrow, because if it is, then, well, I don't get to comment on it. Um, it was a sermon it, that—it was the subject of the sermon that was preached at, uh, at my uh, priesthood ordination, actually, by a guy named Thad Barnum, who's a bishop in the uh, Anglican Church here. But Anyway, so what we see in all this is is God keeps covenant with his people, but we have to constantly encourage one another. I had a good friend uh, talk to me this morning, and uh, one of the things he was saying was how important that he sees it for himself to listen to these podcasts in the morning on his way to work, because he said it sets the point of the day. And as I told him, it's the reason I do them. (laughs) It sets my day. And so it, it... my day is on the right foot if I do these things. It's important for us to stay in the Word of God, and not only that, but to encourage one another on a regular basis to stay in the faith. As that um, initial psalm that I read said that, you know, the refrain is, His steadfast love endures forever. We need to be reminded of that because sometimes it's difficult for us to see that because we're going through difficult times or whatever. And then, so what's intended by that, though, is give thanks to the Lord for His good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And then there's, there's a, there are, what, 36, I think, verses in that uh Psalm 26 verses in that psalm, and and every one of them gives something God has done and then says his steadfast love endures forever, and we are to be the people whose steadfast love endures forever towards him 
and towards one another. And the way we do that is we recount all that the Lord has done, whether he's done it in history or whether he's done it in our lives. We need to, to, to take a mental checklist of this is all the stuff the Lord has done for me. He has been so good to me. He has protected me. He has kept me safe. He has kept me uh, healthy. He has kept me alive. He has kept me in every single way. That's the way we need to begin the day. We need to constantly be reminding ourselves of the goodness of God and that he can do anything.